Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. You're tuned in to the host, Eucharistic and Hipster Talk, with your host, the Reverend Deacon Maverick, Victor Whitlow, and Caleb J. Millens. We hope that you enjoy this episode today with us. Hello, Deacon Maverick. Just call me Deacon Magic in the morning, baby. <laughs> yeah, oh, just so that people know why I did that. My bishop has a daughter, and she can't say Deacon Maverick, so she just says Deacon Magic. So I feel that that is a honorable name for me, and I just think it fits the mood. So, yo, what's up? I'm Absolutely. Cleric from the other <laughs> side of the world, South Korea. Yo. Yeah. Well, it's been a while since we did a podcast, isn't it? Yeah. And I think what's going to confuse people is that um, when we have this episode up, it's going to be released more or less the same time as the previous episode, which was which was recorded, I mean, more a couple than a months ago, right? That's like two months, I think. Uh, let's yeah, say yeah. almost three months. Um, but I mean, I can't be sure. So yeah, it, it, well, yeah, we'll have the both of those out. It, that one's more of a fun episode. So if you liked the metal episode we did, you probably yes. will like this one too. This is one of our takes on pop culture, specifically on on the Vikings. Um, to for our for our listeners who are listening here. Uh, I know that me and Deacon Maverick promised that we would have Bishop Joseph on one of our episodes, and we still intend to do that in the future. Just just hang tight. Uh, we don't know when that's going to be, and simply that's because uh, we have lots of things that are going on right now besides just yeah. what's going on with COVID-19. Uh, lots of new developments have happened with me uh, personally and, and, that are, and all good things, all really good things. Uh, for the future, and hopefully we'll be able to discuss that in more detail in future podcasts, but just due to the sensitivity of some of this stuff, we don't want want it to get out right now, but we will have Bishop Joseph on here eventually, Um, and just to kind of give you a hint of what's going on with me, uh, more than likely Bishop Joseph is going to become my bishop in not too long, and we'll maybe explain how in the world that happened, but today... Uh, today we're going to do a much more serious note, and, yeah. and one that's a little more somber and requires a little more, probably, By attention the, from our listeners. So, By the way, I actually don't think we've made it official, but um, I, I don't know if we mentioned this in the previous episode, but uh, for, for, for most of you who know, um, I was ordained as a deacon, and I was going to, you know, become a priest in the... ACC, which is the Anglican Catholic Church, which is a continuing uh, Anglican uh, jurisdiction. Um, but I've, um, you know, when did it happen? That that wow, that's that's a while back, three months ago too. Yeah. So I was received into the Anglican Churches of America and Associates. Um, yeah. So, uh, which is actually not so much an Anglo-Catholic. Um, um, mm-hmm. jurisdiction we we would more i think more accurately define ourselves as uh, orthodox catholic with an anglican patrimony so um in yeah, short western orthodox <laughs> and i mean we can uh because there are a lot of questions and i think some of our own friends who are somewhat uh confused some of them are concerned because they asking questions like you know did you become eastern orthodox and uh, to be really out out in your face, um, I mean, as calmly as I can put it, Caleb and I have always been Eastern in our theology. Yeah, um, for a long so, time. And I mean, we just don't see the need. And, and obviously, in the future, we'll tackle that and what it really means to be uh, Orthodox. You know, does, and I mean, I think the, the question within itself uh, begs several other questions. You know, it it, it begs other questions. It it, it really um, it just assumes too much because, uh, for those of you who know, is that uh, 
Moscow and Constantinople in the Eastern Orthodox community are no longer in communion. And so you have all sorts of questions about what it even means to be uh, a canonical Orthodox body. But um, right. So I'm not going to do a lot of the talking. I'm probably going to be giving over to Caleb, probably because this is an issue that started, um, that became yeah. uh, and, uh, stimulated in, on, you know, in North America, specifically the United, United States. Um, mm. Most of you have been wondering, you know, what, what a Christian response to Black Lives Matter is. And I mean, I just need to say this uh, for, for those of you listening in, because many people may uh, criticize Caleb, you know, well, he's a white guy. He shouldn't have any say, you know, and that, that's an unfortunate um, issue. But um, as a person of color looking in, I can just say that I back Caleb 100%. What most people don't know is, and Caleb's going to be more articulate and um, he's going to be explaining these things more accurately, but, um, you know, there's nothing that we have against black people. Um, no. We obviously do agree that black lives do matter. Of course. The concern that we have are some of the underlying presuppositions and all sorts of other ideologies that's actually behind Black Lives Matter. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I'm not even sure what we're going to name this podcast, but without further ado, um, I'm going to start this off by asking Caleb, what's up with Black Lives Matter? What, yeah. What is this about? Um, well, yeah, we can, uh, it's going to be a long story, but I'll try to condense it as much as I can. And I, I appreciate yeah. your backing, uh, Deacon Maverick. So, Basically, Black Lives Matter became as vocal as they possibly could, uh, or kind of came out into the scene around the 2015-2016 sort of time period. And this is when, of course, the presidency of Barack Obama was ending in the United States, and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were running for the presidency. And during this time, uh, and I'm speaking mainly in the context of the church. I'm going to try to leave politics out of it as much as I can, because really we represent the church. We don't represent, you know, a political candidate. And yeah. one of the things I noticed is, see, I was newly married at the time, and my wife and I uh, were attending her her home church that she had been going to for quite a while because of the time we were house-sitting for my, my parents-in-law. And I was noticing when we would go to her church, because I really liked her church at the time. I was uh, still a Southern Baptist at the time, Reformed Southern Baptist. As I was hearing things coming from the pulpit at her church regarding race, regarding white Christians and black Christians and the way that they have to interact and things like that. And it just never sat right with me. And as time went on, I, I was actually at the, at the same time taking a class when I was in master's school, uh, getting my English degree on critical race theory and literature. And so a lot of the things I was hearing in this class were some of the same things I was hearing out of the pulpit. And the reason this disturbed me is because I'm pretty sure I don't have any hard evidence, but just from listening to my professor, he was pretty much a Marxist in many ways. And and I was like, this is a guy, you know, who isn't a Christian, who wants nothing to do with Christianity. And I'm hearing the same arguments coming out of the mouth of the pastor. And this really concerned me. And I started to see it wasn't just a local problem at my wife's church, but many of the what we'll call the reformed evangelical intelligentsia. Um, mainly, these are people involved with the Gospel Coalition. So just to name some off here, because I'm not afraid to name names. Uh, Russell Moore, Al Mohler, Tim Keller, John Piper, Matt Chandler, David Platt, Legan Duncan, the Beatty, Inyabwali, Eric Mason, others like that, uh, were really pushing this view of, of racial reconciliation that was adopting language and tactics that the world was saying that everyone needed to adopt. And again, it just never, ever sat right with me. So I guess 
the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is kind of born out of this same sentiment. And Black Lives Matter on the surface, it's almost like how could you, if you were a decent human being, especially a Christian, not affirm what Black Lives Matter supposedly is, is for. But it's kind of like biting into a chocolate-covered turd, <laughs> if that makes sense. It's chocolate and delicious on the outside, but when you get into the middle, it's it's rotten and nasty and disgusting. And, uh, yeah. Do they have chocolate-covered turds in the States? <laughs> no, but we do have I mean, chocolate-covered ants. And, uh, I mean, I'm places. just saying, <laughs> South Africans, we don't do that kind of thing, just in case you guys are wondering. That is no. <laughs> no. And I'm one of those guys that I've never been one of those guys to jump on the bandwagons when they come by. I've never been once to buy into an ideology until I've exhaustively looked at it. And the more I've looked into Black Lives Matter, I mean, it didn't take me long to find things which I expected to find. Um, just going on to their website, and you can do this on your own time. Don't take my word for it. When you look up in the about section about who they are and what they believe, there is so much in there that's anti-Christian, it's not even funny. Um, black Lives Matter not only supports black lives, but they support um, uh, homosexual agendas. They also support transgenderism. Uh, recently, they've gotten support and have reciprocated that support to Planned Parenthood, which is an abortion clinic, uh, a worldwide abortion clinic, for that matter. And to me, it's like... It doesn't matter what you think about what Black Lives Matter says they support. No Christian should give one red cent to an organization that supports these sort of things. But the thing is, even for Christians who aren't outrightly supporting Black Lives Matter, they're still embracing a foundational philosophy which Black Lives Matter is built upon, and that is the idea of critical race theory. And... Uh, to sort of define that, I actually have an article I'm going to be uh, publishing with Bishop Joseph whenever, uh, probably in the next few months. And uh, I, this is sort of a summary of what this article is about. But critical race theory, just to give you an official one, this is from uh, official definition. This is from Purdue University. It's a, it's a theoretical and interpretive mode that examines appearance of race and racism across dominant cultural modes of expression. In adopting this approach, scholars attempt to understand how victims of systemic racism are affected by cultural perceptions of race and how they are able to represent themselves to counter prejudice. In other words, in plain English, it's a philosophical framework for understanding how the oppression of racial minorities in a society relates to power structures. In other words, this, this framework assumes that the system in place is inherently racist or bias towards uh, the flourishing of white people and not the flourishing of, of racial minorities that are not white. And the thing is, critical race theory is at its heart a Marxist theory. And I don't say that to be pejoratively, like I don't just call everyone a communist. I mean, it literally is a Marxist theory. Uh, if, I, if you think I'm not correct on that, uh, just look up the founder of Black Lives Matter um, she has said, or one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, her name is Patrice uh, Colors. she has said quite plainly in interviews, we are trained Marxists. And what does Marxism do? Well, Marxism, of course, was you know invented by a German philosopher by the name of Karl Marx, or a political philosopher, I guess you could call him that. Um, and it was made mainly to be a, a political framework, but it assumes certain things. It assumes that man's a mere animal. There is no God. Uh, religion is what he would call the opiate of the masses. So things like race, class, and gender are just mere social constructs that are used to control the masses, and religion would be one of those things as well. Society is composed of people that he calls the haves and the have and the have-nots. Um, so the have-nots are usually classes or, or races that are minorities, and then the haves are the ones that rule above it. And basically the only way a person can break this this corrupt cycle is for the have-nots to start a revolution, uh, usually violent, according to Karl Marx. But the the same the same political philosophy has failed multiple times. I mean, just look at China and red 
uh, and Red Russia, for example, we've seen the fruit of communism and what it does. And so instead of, of throwing communism out as a, as a political philosophy, many have adopted it as a social philosophy. And what they've done with that is it assumes many things are, are that, that Marx had already assumed for his political philosophy and applies it to race and social constructs. And the sad thing about this is, is many Christians are buying into this ideology in my article, I say that this is instead of uh, it's like it's like Christians coming across a bottle of hemlock, and then rather than slapping, uh, I mean rather than pouring it down the drain, they slap a, a label on it that says wine, and they pass it around for people to drink. Um, you can't really, in my opinion, you can't baptize an ideology that's inherently unchristian, that's inherently anti-Christian, and and that just it just doesn't work that way. Uh, and so, what these reformed intelligentsia in the Reformed and Evangelical world who are really pushing these racial ideologies, uh, this is what they sort of assume, and you'll see the connections between critical race theory as a Marxist framework. It, it, so basically they assume that the church has failed to address racial segregation in the body of Christ, and likewise it's perpetuated the separation between white and non-white Christians, and whether that's intentional or not is beside the point. Uh, that all, they also assume that white Christians as a whole have a moral burden to address the racial sins in society and politics, and that the church, uh, and the church, because they, the white Christians in the church are privileged, they have the duty to do that um, because it was granted to to them by their privileges were granted to them by an inherently racist system. And the third point is that some ways they say that white Christians have to alleviate this problem is to basically step out of the limelight and give quote unquote people of color a place to flourish in the churches and implement anti-racist programs. This ideology, you know, swept the reformed and evangelical worlds in the SPC and the PCA and many other uh, denominations, but now it's starting to find its way into Lutheranism and into Anglicanisms. And even in my community, the Anglican church of North America, as well as into even Orthodox bodies in the OCA and to even Catholic uh, communions. And this sort of assumption is an assu has so many built-in presuppositions and philosophical understandings that are unquestioned. For firstly, it, it assumes that the system in place is systemically and inherently racist. And it also assumes that the white Christian is privileged above other non-white Christians. And, and so these assumptions, though, you, are like accusations that you have to back up. And I've yet to see anyone, whether it be the Black Lives Matter movement or the, uh, or the, the reformed evangelical types that are pushing these sort of ideologies, I've yet to see any evidence for these claims. And there may be, but the fact is that they, they avoid that at all costs. But the problem with these assumptions, these three assumptions, is that there is, well, this, I'll just read you a part of my article, what it says here. It says, what people in these, in these uh, evangelical and reformed uh, communions, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're often praised into the sky for their wisdom on this matter. But the fact is, the average will and well-intending Christian fails to realize that the stances that they have are dangerous because one, it accuses the bride of Christ of a very egregious sin. And two, it assumes that white privilege actually exists and systemic racism again, without any evidence. And therefore white Christians stand guilty of the sins of their forebearers. And then number three, it asks white Christians to treat non-Christian, non-white Christians differently from white Christians. So the, the problem there is, is that no matter how clever or how well-intended or the points are that these certain Christian groups make, the, the accusations and the solutions they put forward are far greater evils than anything that they're saying is wrong with uh, the American church. Because the thing is, to, when you accuse the body of Christ of, or the, the bride of Christ of a moral failure, I mean, you're literally charging Jesus' lover, his, his, uh, his soulmate, his wife, the one who he died for, 
of an egregious sin. And that is something I just want to put the brakes on and say, who are you to do such a thing? Um, you know, Maverick and I have a much higher view of the church than your average American evangelical and Protestant. Yeah. We believe that the church is holy. We believe she is Catholic. We believe she is spotless and blameless in the sight of her Lord, that in, in a sense, sinless. Uh, we're not saying that you can't address corruption from leadership that's within the church, but you never attack the church as a whole. You attack the individual. You can attack the individual, the the bishop or the priest or the deacon who's causing the problem, or even the layman who's causing the problem because the church is made up of sinners. But you cannot call the church a sinner. You cannot call the, church, the bride of Christ a failure. Uh, it's, I mean, Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 33, and, you know, Ephesians five twenty-two. it says, I mean, he even says, who can bring a charge against the Lord's elect? I mean, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. And for People like Russell Moore and Al Muller and all the other ones I uh, I mentioned above, for them to even suggest that the church is guilty of this is just beyond me. And I, I mean, if I were a priest, I wouldn't commune someone who made such a statement like that. That's how strong I feel about it. And the thing is, I think the reason why they come to that conclusion is that Reformed Protestants and Evangelicals simply do not have a true sense of the church being Catholic or the church being holy. I mean, I've even heard them say, like, quote Augustine when he says the church is a whore, but she's my mother. I, I do not take that view at all. I do not believe the church is a whore. And that's the sort of the way the that Reformed Protestants see the church. They see it as this great sinner that the Lord simply has mercy on, but she's going to continue to be a sinner and basically live this defeated life until Christ comes again. And so, yeah, though it's really easy to accuse the church of sin in that when you, that's how you view the church. But the other problem is they have no sense of the church being Catholic. And what I mean by that is that there is no unified Protestant church. So if they see a problem going on in a singular church or a singular, you know, denomination, or whatever, they accuse the entire church of it as if they are in communion with the rest of the church. But the fact is, they're not. I mean, the Protestant church is divided into many churches that cannot even agree on a proper interpretation of sola scriptura. So how in the world do they accuse the church, the bride of Christ, of a sin like this? It makes no logical sense at all. Uh, the other problem I see is that they also have this sense that if you have a skin tone like mine, you are guilty of perpetuating systemic racism in the church. And I mean, by being guilty by virtue of your skin color, that's a pretty heavy accusation. And it's rather weird. It may seem weird to people like, how in the world do you accuse somebody of a sin they've never committed? Well, in the Reformed Protestant world, they have a doctrine which allows for that. And that's the doctrine of original sin, where you are guilty of the sins of Adam. You are guilty of the sin of Adam of eating the fruit. You're born guilty of that simply because you're related to Adam. And the thing is, I, I what I want to put to someone is, well, if you're guilty of the sin, if you could be guilty of the sin of Adam, which happened eons ago, then, yeah, it's not too much of a leap for a Protestant to say that you are guilty of the sins of your great granddaddy, which only happened about 100 years ago. And so, and again, this is something that Deacon Maverick and I would totally reject. In fact, the entire Orthodox Church would, would, would reject. We do not believe anyone is guilty of any sin except the sin of himself, uh, the one that he commits yeah. himself. Um, we do not believe that people are born guilty of sin. We believe people are born under the reign of sin and death. But we do not believe that people are guilty of someone else's sin. We believe the only sins you will answer for on Judgment Day are your own. And the, the other problem I see is that uh, the, the third point is that the very, this idea that the very proposal that white Christians have a privilege and that they must take a, like a back, take a back seat in the church, what, that, what that's basically saying is it's saying, well, you know, if you're a white Christian, you have a responsibility to treat non-white Christians differently because of the oppression and years of systemic racism. 
And to me, that's just, that's simply racism. It's just a, a quote unquote kind racism, right? It's, it's a racism that has a good intent. But the problem is it's like, well, you're doing this for your neighbors. And I'm like, well, that's the same logic that United States, the crooked racist white politicians used for Jim Crow laws uh, after, after the civil war. So this is the same sort of logic that was used by racist white politicians when Jim Crow laws were active in the United States. They basically said, well, we have to keep blacks separate from whites. We have to treat blacks differently from whites. It's for the sake of our white neighbor. The only difference is, is that people that are that claim to be Christian who push this sort of uh, ideology are saying this is for the sake of our non-white Christian neighbors. We have to treat them differently. This is what I call a, a, a kind racism at the end of the day. And the this is just a total violation of what Paul says in Galatians when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. And it's also in violation of the golden rule in the Gospel of Matthew, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is just... You know, the idea that I have to treat someone different from the way that I would want to be treated or and and have that reciprocated. That's that's just a violation of that. I, if we're going to be truly for equality, we have to treat people equally no matter what. And that um, that means we cannot base our, the, our treatment of people and qualify that by nothing more than their skin color. We just simply don't treat fellow Christians in that way for better or worse. And this sort of ideology, this, this baptized critical race theory is being pushed, you know, in the Protestant world. It's getting, it's getting to the point that uh, we've had a lot of, a lot of Christians who have stood up against it. For example, uh, there's a fellow I really enjoy on YouTube by the name of A.D. Robles, who is a uh, Reformed Baptist elder and he makes responses to the growing critical race theory uh, in his own communion, and he does a very good job of refuting it, uh, he himself uh, being uh, a non-white Christian. And the, uh, the other thing is, just to show you how close this hits to home, is my wife's uh, former pastor, I won't name him, uh, was actually asked to step down uh, from his church because his views had gotten so divisive in his own church that the elders and others in leadership finally stood up and said, you need to step down. Uh, it's, it's reaching a boiling point in the United States and it, it's just becoming very ugly. And I just never thought I would ever see, you know, the church, uh, the Protestant church is adopting this. And at first it's easy to write this off when you're an Orthodox Christian uh, to say, well, that's a Protestant problem. Well, now it's coming into the OCA and it's coming into the uh, Catholic churches and, things and the Anglican churches and Lutheran churches. And we, it's a problem that can no longer be ignored. One of the things that I put forward in the article is the solution to the problem. And I do this, and the problem with Protestant churches is that when we look at the history of Protestantism, it's mainly a European phenomenon. Would you agree with that? Deacon Maverick, it's mainly isolated European phenomenon, whether it's Germany or yeah. whatever. Yeah. The, the reformers whether it's Luther, Calvin, or whoever, they were really not thinking globally about this. They were really thinking about Europe in general. And, I mean, we never read of one reformer in all of history that ever thought, hmm, maybe I should take this theology to Africa or to Saudi Arabia or to Asia. And believe me, if they had tried the Christian presence there, would not have let them do it. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, um, just to... To, to weigh in there. Um, yeah. When you look at the writings of Heinrich mm -hmm. Bullinger, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, mm -hmm. the hermeneutic uh, leaves room for all sorts of strange theories of covenant, that God has a covenant with your own ethnic people. This is a big one. And in South Africa, we actually have uh, a group mm -hmm. of Protestant churches known as the APC, uh, the African Protestant Church, where racial segregation is one of the you know the cornerstones of their own liturgical piety um, right. you know and and it all comes down from that hermeneutic comes down to that hermeneutic and you know reformed people 
may say, well, this this safeguards against Black Lives Matter. But the problem with that is it's the exact inverse of what Black Lives Matter is doing. Right. Um, it's, it is. It's, it's just, yeah, it, it, it's, it's the other side of madness. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's the inverse reality. And, um, and I've spoken to a lot of reformed people who have this view. And it is also it goes against the consensus of the church. Um, it it yes. really goes against um, orthodox teaching orthodox and catholic um teaching and i mean this is just foreign to christian spirituality um and, it, and it know, is and, and you know what just to weigh in and agree with what caleb you know the things that caleb was identifying and and you know you mentioned a couple of things i've seen the anglican church completely obliterated by social issues Mm-hmm. Um, the Anglican Church of South Africa, also known as the Church of the Province, um, we've seen men like Archbishop Desmond Tutu and others like yeah. him who have th- th- they bought into this um, racial reconciliation kind of you know social teaching, and mm-hmm. and and basically this is how it started off. It started off like this: apartheid was a sin, you know, was sinful. Okay, fine. That's true. Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, and then they would go a step further and they say, well, if they got this wrong, what else have they got wrong? And then liberation theology, and it comes down to those kind of things. Liberation mm-hmm. theology, you know, we need to stop oppressing homosexuals. We need to stop oppressing black people. We need to stop oppressing this person. We need to stop oppressing that that person. And then right. you use cultural... Um, you use cultural uh, identity markers. You use um, sp- specific demographics of people, and use that as a means to push the narrative, and it loses the essence of the gospel, because you f- you're so focused on social constructs, you're so focused on social ideologies, and this is something that's very disturbing about this form of narrative theology. And I've done a lot of studies in, you know, LGBT theology uh, with, um, you know, liberal Anglo-Catholic theologians like uh, Bob Patrick Ching. And basically, it comes down to this. Sin is not anymore. Sin is no longer something that someone does which breaks the law of God. It's not something that someone individually does which sins against God. Sin Mm -hmm. is then defined by social social issues sin is defined by past sins um mm-hmm. which are done by people in your lineage sin becomes something other than the thing that you personally do which grieves god and that's that's the downhill that, that that's how things go downhill and right. what's very interesting is sin becomes more an issue of a systematic uh, sins like uh, cultural yeah. sins and yeah. that then redefines what it means when we speak about the word sin. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the story of Jesus is turned into, you know, I've, I've heard about people who say things like, well, Jesus was a socialist. Yeah, Jesus cringe. Was a, Jesus was a communist. And I'm, and, and you know, it just kind of like, well, where are you getting this stuff? And it's anachronistic. And what we need to realize, I think, is that when it comes to any kind of ideology, this is an issue of spiritual warfare. Um, yes. These, because this is what people don't realize. Demonic entities, spiritual, spiritually unclean entities, are not stupid. Um, no. They, they, they are working, you know, behind the scenes. People don't just get these ideas. It, you know, it's, it's, it's learned behavior. It's, and, and you know what? When the Bible speaks about, Paul specifically speaks about arguments, and uh, he speaks about arguments and that, that, that tries to raise itself up against the knowledge of Christ. This is what it's speaking about because what the Black Lives Matter movement is doing, what most of these social justice, liberal, leftist, so-called christian movements are doing is they are destroying they are trying to destroy the church from the inside um 
And I've seen the entire Anglican communion absolutely obliterated. It was completely obliterated. In fact, if you went to the Anglican church in many, you know, into many congregations, into many parishes, you would find that some of those people don't even believe in God. Um, it's, you know, God becomes this idea that you can use to propagate your liberalism, to, to propagate your left-wing ide ideologies. And I'm not speaking as someone, um, you know, who hasn't... I, I've been inside of movements that have done this. Um, I've seen what this does. And I... You know, in a, in a country like South Africa, we have racial, religious arguments thrown around all the time. So mm -hmm. this is a, and, and th this is a sad thing because the Dutch Reformed Church, as you know, the D Dutch Reformed Church is being destroyed from the inside. I mean, I don't consider them to be a church in the truest sense of the word, but that's beside the point. The, the, the fact of the matter is, is that these ideologies are destroying communities and they just, I think they're stimulating very, very strange forms of behavior. Um, and I would also say this, um, the Bible speaks about people who have a form of godliness, but denying its power. People, yeah. and, and this is exactly the kind of people out there. Albert Moeller, um, Russell Tyler, Moore, and all, Megan of, those guys, all yeah. of those guys are sadly buying into the very thing uh, that they swore to protect um, Christians from. They yeah. are actually opening up the doors. And, 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 here's, and here's the thing. I agree with everything Caleb said. It's a tro Trojan war, horse. Because yeah. you know, I, Caleb and I were speaking about the whole George Floyd issue. And to be honest with you, I still, I still say it was a tragic incident. Okay, But that incident was then used as a Trojan horse to mm -hmm. justify an entirely ungodly ideology. Yeah, uh, George, George Floyd's death was the result of a cop who feared neither man nor God. That, that is plain and simple. But the thing is, what I find interesting is how when that incident happened, all the focus was on the white cop who was standing on his neck when the fact is there was a Hispanic cop there helping that certain cop, there was also an Asian cop present. And nobody says a thing about that, but they turn this into a black versus white issue. And the, the, problem, the problem I see with all this nonsense is that, you know, I, I, you know, people say, oh, you don't think that George Floyd, the death, of, no, that was terrible, absolutely terrible. It was also you know, terrible. Um, what was the name of that guy? Um, uh, anyway, there was another, Oh, Philando Castile was killed by a cop because he illegally had a concealed carry permit to carry a gun. And he told the cop about it. And then the cop asked for his wallet. And as he was reaching for his wallet, the cop said, don't reach for your gun. He said, I'm not, I'm reaching for my wallet. And he's like, I, and the cop shot him. That was totally unjust. And me being a gun owner, I have even more sympathy for that. But then in other incidents, like with the shooting of Trayvon Martin and of Michael Brown, I've looked at that evidence, and I think both of those were justified. I think those two were criminals, and they tried to kill those. But I believe that uh, Michael Brown tried to kill the cop that was trying to arrest him, and I do believe that uh, Trayvon Martin tried to kill the neighborhood watch uh person Zimmerman uh, for whenever he questioned him. So I don't just take the cop side. I don't just take the person who was shot side. I examine the evidence and, you know, I've had people where I said that was, a, that was totally justified and that's unjustified. So I'm not biased on this. Uh, the, and yeah, the, and funny thing to your answer about uh, Jesus was a socialist and Jesus was a communist. Um, I have an answer to that. I said, no, he wasn't because he actually fed people. <laughs> yeah um yeah just unapologetically uh but you know it, but yes you know the reformers never thought outside of europe they never thought of, of taking their their gospel quote unquote to africa or asia or saudi arabia or anything like that and 
because, and here's the other thing, is most Protestant and Reformed Christians today, the furthest they think back in terms of theologians besides the apostles in Christ is the Reformers. So they only have about 500 years of theology that they draw upon. And the sad thing about that is that most, all, I mean, all of their theologians are white. They're all white Europeans. And sadly, in America, in my nation, when we had the Jim Crow laws and we had the racial segregation in my country, the Protestant churches actually, for the most part, by majority, supported the actions of the government to segregate uh, everything from you know black and white. And, but I will say this, the Catholic and Orthodox churches certainly did not. And one of the points I make in the article, I'll read this part. I said, an American Protestant should honestly contemplate why it is that most Protestant churches naturally segregate themselves. What I mean by that is when you see a new church get planted that's a Protestant church, you're going to see that most of the members are white. Now in America, about 62% of the population is white. So naturally you will. But for the most part, Protestant churches are one are mono ethnic, and this is why you have black Protestant churches, for example, like the Baptist Missionary Churches, which are all black. Um, they naturally go that way, though segregation has been gone for a long time. I said, but anyway, to continue on, an American Protestant should honestly contemplate why it is that Protestants naturally segregate themselves, while his while the Hispanic family who has just immigrated to the United States and speaks very little English will joyfully attend the Roman Catholic parish with a white English speaking English speaking priest without a second thought. The fact is that historically apostolic communions do not share this problem of racial segregation. One of the chief reasons for this absence is because apostolic communions have had a plethora of saints who hailed from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Some of the greatest theologians who are venerated in apostolic communions are St. Augustine of Hippo, St. Cyprian of Carthage, St. Athanasius of Alexandria, St. Moses the Ethiopian, St. John of Damascus, St. John Cassian, Saint Isaac the, and St. Isaac the Syrian, who were not white Christians, yet they were never held more nor less reverently than the church's European saints. This is where I say directly to my Catholic and Orthodox readers, do not adopt critical race theory. You have absolutely no reason to. And so the, the, the thing is, what, I, what I'm trying to point out to Protestants who read this is that the problem they're having in terms of these racial tensions and this guilt that they're feeling, not, and I'm not asking them to feel like that they're responsible for the sins of their ancestors. I would never ask anybody to feel that way. Um, but the fact is they are realizing there is a problem in Protestantism of natural segregation that happens that they can't get people who are not white into their churches. And what I would say to that is that the problem is you have a very bad starting point, right? And the, because the problem is the starting point they have is 500 years ago with Martin Luther and onward. And that's a huge problem for them. And what I would say is that the answer to your problems, because they're going to try all sorts of things to implement racial seg racial reconciliation, because right now they're adopting critical race theory, but they're going to try all sorts of things, and it's going to either be short a short-lived victory or it's going to fail entirely. And what I tell people is this, the answer is right in front of their face. The answer is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That is the answer. And, of course, they're not going to admit that's the answer because, oh, I don't want that smells and bells, ritualistic, works-based, you know, faith. And the thing is, is that Catholic and Orthodox churches, we have close to 2,000 years of saints. We take the communion of saints extremely seriously. And, you know, with things like the Athanasian Creed and with readings of the Church Fathers, etc., we are constantly reminded that the church is not a monolithic racial demographic, that we have all these great saints who were not white. And but the thing is, we don't ever emphasize the fact that they're not white. It's simply accepted that they're a saint, just like the Greek saints, just like the Irish saints, just like the, uh, the other European saints. It's that you know, we are, it's constantly put before our face that the Lord is making a family, a global family that has people of every tongue, tribe, and nation in it. 
And because of that being set before our face and because we can go back and draw from the, from the church fathers and see how God has worked in these other churches that we, and, 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 and in these other nations that we, you know, are not alone in this and that, you know, we just don't have this problem of racial segregation. And I think because Protestants have, for the most part, have cut their church history off at about 500 years ago in the Reformation, they simply have no one to draw upon. I even heard, I think, I can't remember if it was Eric Mason or who, but uh, one of the prominent uh, black reforms theologians said that there is a lack of African influence and reforms theology. And I'm like, yeah, and the only reason you can say that is because you denounce the uh, Catholicity of the church, which has lots of African influence. Simple as that. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. anyway, go ahead. I, you know, there's another thing about this whole Black Lives Matter thing that I talked about the topic, and I, I'm not sure if people tackle this. But people seem to think that Christi the Christian church, including the Catholic church and the Orthodox church, the Anglican church, and every apostolic church out there, that we've only made images of Jesus being white. No. I don't think, I don't think many people, I mean, that's, a, I mean, I understand that people would think that, but that's actually a very misleading, um, absurd accusation because, you know, we have icons of Jesus and Mary and many of the saints in right. different colors. You have a black Mary and Jesus icon. Mm -hmm. You have an Arabic Mary and Jesus icon. And you have an Asian Jesus, Ma Jesus and Mary icon. And you have a, a Celtic Mary and Jesus icon. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's no... A Native American no one, an Aztec one. Um, yeah, no that's reason to think that only white. I mean, it, it seems to me like what the Black Lives Matter movement is saying and what they're trying to get you to believe is the idea that the church has been favoring white people only. So right. Caleb, and there, what would you say to that? Why? Um, why is that absurd? Do you mind if I say something just really straightforward and blunt? Um, sure. To those who to those who say that they know neither Christianity nor God Himself. They simply don't. They are they are ignorant. They are buffoonish, and they are just absolutely stupid for thinking that. I'm sorry for sounding very blunt with that, but that's the way I feel about that. This is a this is what happens when a person doesn't care to do a little research. And uh, the reason why I say that is, as Deacon Maverick rightly pointed out, this sort of sentiment that oh, Christianity is a white man's religion is someone who has no idea what they're talking about. And here's why I say that, because let me pull something up here. The, the church, well, first of all, if, if it's made to be a religion for white people or one that favors white people, all I have to say to that is that I must be a self-hating white person because, because the God I worship is, in fact, a Middle Eastern man, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, it's the most ironic thing. And then yeah. our founders are all Jewish and of all the writers, all the writers of scripture were Jewish and Semitic people, except for Luke, who was a Greek. He's the only European who ever wrote a gospel. At least that's what I believe from all the research I've done. I know some people disagree with that, but, but it, it, it's just so ironic that somebody would say that. And the fact of the matter, I've seen these Black Lives Matter guys like Sean King who are saying, I'm, we, we need to tear down statues of white Jesus. And what's funny is that you even have reformed people who were saying this before there ever was an uh, a active Black Lives Matter movement calling for the destruction of white Jesus statues and white Jesus icons. And what I have to say to that is they don't know their own history is that African people knew about Jesus before most Americans did. The Ethiopian church and the, Eth and the nation of Ethiopia is one of the oldest Christian nations on the planet. It is. It's like they knew about Jesus almost a thousand years before most Europeans did. I mean, they were just, I mean, goodness gracious, this is just ignorance 
I mean, I'm getting kind of worked up here, as you can tell. But uh, in fact, I'm trying to find the meme. I have a, a meme that actually says, yeah, it says uh, Christ was forced upon black people. huh?" It says the Ethiopian, this Ethiopian Bible was written a thousand years before slavery. You do the math. The fact is that African Christianity has been a very strong force in the Catholic and apostolic bodies. And the one thing I would like to say to BLM activists and especially guys like Sean King wanting to tear down white Jesus, this is what I have to say. You, again, you are ignorant and you have no idea what you're talking about. The fact is the reason why European Christians make Jesus look white and why African Christians make Jesus look black and Asians make him look Asian and Native Americans make him look Native American. It's not that we believe that he was actually my, our own race, right? We, every, any Christian worth his salt knows that Jesus was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. He was Semitic. What we are declaring when we make an icon of Christ of our own racial demographic is we are declaring that Jesus Christ shares our humanity, all of our humanity, because all of us have the same ancestor in Adam and Eve, right? Yeah. Jesus Christ is related to Adam and Eve. Every human being is related to Adam and Eve. So the reason why we depict him as our own race is to say, hey, he, if you are a black man, if you are a white man, if you are Asian, Native American, Latino, no matter what, Jesus Christ shares your humanity, and that's why he can save you. Yep. And so that is why we depict, why I have no problem with Jesus being depicted as black or white or Asian or whatever, because he does share that person's humanity, no matter the fact that he was actually a Semitic Jew. And yeah. it's like, and that's, that's why I think it's just so, and this is why... I think that reformed people, again, are also getting onto this bandwagon is because they're ignorant of the traditions of the church in regards to why Jesus and iconography is done the way it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So, I but, mean, yeah, I mean, this is obviously a very big discussion, but I think we've tackled at least the things that we wanted to tackle to at least give people an idea about how Christians and specifically apostolic Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians need right. to respond to this kind of right. issue. And I mean, right. you know, I would just, because as a person of color, and I mean, you as a white guy, Caleb, I yeah. would really, I would have really hated it if we were not able to have the kind of friendship that we have right now. And oh, yeah. Kind of boring. Um, of course it would. Imagine, imagine living in a homogenous society, not having any desire to mixing with other people. Um, yeah, and I think that, and I think the the grace of God is that the church makes this possible. That yes. Christ, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, makes this possible. I think that when we cling to the teachings of the apostles and we cling to the great tradition of the church, that these racial and cultural demographics become a non-issue. It just doesn't become an issue anymore. It's, and this is what is so great is that we have all these different perspectives from Christians around the world that have contributed to the faith in, in such a great way, right? And it, it's like... It's just amazing, you know, and and I think that that's the answer that Protestant and evangelical churches are are missing is that yeah. they they don't know what to do because they have sort of dug themselves into this hole regarding racial reconciliation. And so what I would have to say to those who see this problem and don't and can't find a solution is that you do have a solution and it's right in front of your face, you need to come home. And that's a hard thing to hear for a lot of Protestants. You need to come home to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It has what you are seeking. And that requires letting go of a lot of heretical dogmas that you are holding that you believe to be gospel truth. And 
I, you know, one of the things I, I plan to do this month is I had a friend who is sort of a reformed uh, Baptist sort of friend, and uh, I'm planning, I told him I was becoming orthodox, and we've gotten into political and discussions about race and things like that. And I said, would you ever care to discuss orthodoxy with me about this issue? And he said, oh, yeah, and he's very open to orthodox people. He actually called me. He said, I have a great respect for my orthodox brothers, which I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, the, the fact that he's a reformed Baptist and said that was actually quite flattering, you know, and or quite quite a welcome change where most reformed Baptists call me a heretic. And uh, I wouldn't even call you brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so. Anyway, but but the, that's the answer to the problem is it the answer to the problem is to a new it's not really a new problem but the the oldest answer in the book is the answer to the problem and it's the church the church just destroys those boundaries the church destroys that prejudice it just doesn't allow it in because because I'm one thing I think that Deacon Maverick the reason I think our friendship has become stronger is because we are in the church, you know, that is, I think that without that, our friendship would not be as strong. I really don't. And I think that that's why the, why God chooses to use the church for these things is because it actually does make stronger binding friendships and brotherhoods that would not be possible in any other uh, human constructed thing. We, I mean, we are literally united by the sacrament of holy baptism, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty dope. Absolutely. Like, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to become, you know, become all geeky now, but it sounds like something on a movie, united by holy baptism. Absolutely. Strange world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. United yeah. By, the, by the monarchy of the Father. man jesus christ it's the caleb and maverick show (laughs) (laughs) maybe maybe that'll have to be our new introduction to show it yeah (laughs) the trinitarian legacy into the path of theosis you know funny thing just to go off on a tangent here i actually had uh um you might know who this guy is our uh dear listeners but uh uh, Eric Ibarra from Reason and Theology, um, I was actually having a discussion with him and several others on the Filioque, and he actually conceded. He said, yes, the Father is the only uh, first principle. The Son and the Spirit are not the first principle. So he admitted to the monarchy of the Father, which I was like, I'm really glad to hear a Catholic say that. <laughs> you know, because mo- uh, I, I think there's actually more Catholics who who actually hold to that position because it's funny. The best lecture I've ever heard on the monarchy of the father was from a Catholic scholar who defended it. And uh, so I'm really happy to see that because I think the it's funny. I even had another conversation with a, with a Catholic friend of mine and he was saying that, you know, in the Eastern right of the Catholic church, they, the reason they're allowed not to say the filioque is because Rome understands that in Greek, the word proceed has a weight and a connotation that it doesn't have in Latin, which I'm like, that's interesting. So, but I mean, uh, just, uh, I mean, about a month ago, I had a conversation with my my archbishop about this, and he did say, you know, there is room Mm -hmm. for, you know, this issue issue to becoming a non-issue when we yeah. actually listen to one another. I mm-hmm. think I, I think what most of us are reacting against is the idea that the that the papacy, the magisterium can, you know, that the Latin right. papacy can then just add this without the consent of the church. I think that's where yeah. that that one that and the fact that it seems that the con the the historical context of the creed has yeah. nothing to do with can Jesus send the Spirit when it's sent when he's sent to him through the Father. That's not an issue. No, no, neither Catholic nor Orthodox dispute that. But that's not what's in question with the creed. The creed is dealing with origin. The creed is dealing with divine origin of the persons of the Trinity, 
right? Yeah. The, the historical context of a written work matters. I mean, I'm an English guy, so, you know, that that's one thing that matters when you read, a, you know, a piece of literature, whether it's an article or a book or a short story or creed, the context matters because it, it directs the conversation of the piece of literature. And I think that that's another thing that I think even Catholics who recognize the problem with the filioque in Greek need to really come to terms with is that this, the creed is addressing origin. It's not addressing whether or not Christ can send the spirit. That's not the problem. We're not dealing with functional Trinity. We're dealing with or the origin of the Trinity. But anyway, we're, we're, we're digressing here, but uh, getting back to the whole racial thing, um, all I'd have to say is that if you are an evangelical reformed Christian um, who is struggling with this, who finds your clergy just adopting this without a second thought, you're not alone. You're not alone. Even those of us in apostolic communions are having the same problem and you have our greatest sympathy. But I will say this, speak up, speak up before it's too late, because one of the things I didn't do in my wife's old church because I wasn't a member there. I never had been, um, is that I felt I did not have the right to speak up in a church of whom I was not a member of. And whereas in, uh, in my communion, I am a member, I'm a confirmed Anglican in, in the Anglican church of North America. And, uh, well, that won't be too long, but, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but the, but the the point is, is that I had a place where I could say this. And whenever I saw this letter that kind of sparked this this uh, rebuttal that I've written here uh, come out in the ACNA, I spoke up. I made a video and posted on Facebook and made it shareable to everyone. And it really took a lot of people by surprise. I think that that for most part, the leadership in my parish thought everybody would be behind this 100 percent. But the fact is me and a lot of people were not. So speaking up certainly helps. It draws attention to the fact that this is ungodly. And I would say this to other people is that when you encounter something, uh, any etiology, you always want to investigate it to the fullest extent. Never just accept it because it's the bandwagon. Don't even accept it because your church leadership likes the idea. Because Satan is not going to come out in the open for you to recognize, hey, I invented this, or hey, I'm implementing this ideology. He always comes in through a back door, and he always tries to make it look good and make it look appealing. Because what a lot of people have done in this Reformed Evangelical intelligentsia that came through the Gospel Coalition and others is that they have said, this is a gospel issue. This is a church and Christian issue, and you should get behind it. And see, what you've done when you've done that, when you've baptized this ideology in that way, you make any opposition to that not a, a anti-Christian thing. And so always, always question things like this. Always investigate it until you can investigate it no more. The philosophical and presuppositional and theological foundation of an etiology matters. It matters a great deal. And whenever you find that the, the, the philosophical foundation of an idea is not Christian, that it's actually based on something which is opposed to Christianity, which I would say Marxism is an inherently antichrist uh, system, you need to reject it. Reject it wholesale. It does not matter if it makes clever points. It does not matter if, if hey, I really like what it said. It does not matter. Throw it away. Get it away as far as possible. Start with a Christian assumption. Simple as that. So I think we can start closing it off. So um, Absolutely. Why don't you, uh, yeah, why don't you uh, lead us out in a prayer, Deacon Never? Okay. Uh, O comforter, the spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of good gifts and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every stain. O gracious one, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our deaths. Amen. 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 All right, well... 
Deacon Maverick, I think it's almost time for you to get to bed where you're at. Am I right? No. I, no? It's time for me to game because I... Oh, because it's the weekend. Ah, so you're going to stay yes, up a little later. So okay. I don't need to grind tomorrow. I'm going to be grinding in, uh, the, in the core <laughs> of outer space on Warframe. Gotcha. But I mean, yeah. Sounds fun, man. Well, yeah. I'm going to... So, I can shoot aliens to the glory <laughs> of God. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What it's all about, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, um, just to just to put that out there, um, you know, I kind of got the shiver down my spine when I was watching the Chronicles of Narnia two weeks ago. Um, you know, the the fawn when he's looking at Lucy, he's just like. Well, you are in fact a daughter of Eve and, you know, the son of Adam and stuff. And that's what we are, man. So, Absolutely. And likewise, brothers to Christ. Yes. We are now um, children, you know, we we are now under the headship of Christ. You you know what I think? You know what I think we ought to do? Uh, We ought to make, since we're, you know, becoming orthodox and everything... And theosis is a big thing for us. I think one of the things that we ought to do is uh, you ought to make a T-shirt. You remember those cheesy Christian yeah. T-shirts that look like like logos from you know popular things? Like you would see one that looks like a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup logo, but when you got close, it said Jesus. You know, you ought to make one for Dragon Ball Z, and it says like it's like super like Super Saiyan on his way to becoming a god. You know, <laughs> something like that. You know. Mm-hmm. But do it in the context of theosis. That would be really cool. It's like on my way to to becoming God, you know? Yep. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Love it. Love it. <laughs> I'll I let know, you come up with that. We, we should actually... I would like to create some uh, really high-quality T-shirts with icons on it. Um, that mm-hmm. would be really cool. Um, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. All right, man. Well, you have a great oh. night. And uh, I'm going to get, yeah, I, well, it's actually morning here, so I got to get to work. This is uh, my... Boring! Okay, no, I do not actually think it is boring. Uh, do not actually take my advice, guys. Um, I'm just fooling around right now. Work is a God-given thing, so do not... I do not realize that that came across as being passionate, and it probably was, but I'm still going to go to work, so... Okay, Definitely. I'm going to get into trouble because my bishop could be listening to this. So, okay, uh, I didn't say it. it was okay, you didn't say it. it. Yeah, blame me. <laughs> of course. Why do you think I have friends? Of course. Of course. All right, we'll go slaughter your aliens and cheers, and we'll catch y'all next time. Bye-bye. Cheers, man. Cheers. <laughs>